0: Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of October 27th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. So this morning, though, Mark chapter 12, we're wrapping up this chapter. And just to remind you of where we were at, Jesus is in that last week before he is crucified. He's in that last week of his life. And he has been engaging in a lot of conversations with religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. In the temple in Jerusalem. And they have been, as we've seen in the previous portions of this chapter, they have been aggressively questioning him, trying to trip him up, trying to make him look silly, trying to make him foolish, trying to discredit him in front of everyone else there in Jerusalem. And they have failed miserably. Every time they have a question, he has come back with an answer and something that shows them that you know, they're the ones who are a little bit silly and, and not him. As we begin our passage this morning, no longer is Jesus the one being asked questions, now he begins asking the questions of these others. And we're going to see him make a few points this morning. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. In his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplace, and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned. All she had to live on. Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. May we catch a glimpse of the things that Jesus was trying to communicate to those around him. And Lord, may you draw us to a deeper faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to see a couple of things this morning as we work through these three different accounts. It feels like three different segments, but they all are related. And we're going to see that this morning. We're going to see a couple things. One, we're going to see that God and the Savior, and specifically Jesus, is much more than the people of Israel had imagined Him to be. And we're going to see that as a result of their deflated or their small view of God, they had inflated the view of themselves. And we're going to see an example of one whose faith was, in fact, great because she had a great view of God. So as you look at these three things here, I want us to begin with this question that he asks of them. Now, what he's doing here in verse 36, Jesus is referring to a passage of Scripture in the 110th Psalm. Psalm 110, and this is the opening phrase of that. And that Psalm opens with this phrase, my Lord said to my Lord. And it's recognized, even by the Jewish people of that day, to be a, a passage of Scripture that referred to the Messiah. Now, we recognize that in Jesus' day, even today, that one of the terms or one of the names or one of the titles of the Messiah, the Chosen One, was Son of David. Right? He's, he was to be a descendant in the line of David. And if we go to the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, some of those Christmas passages, we see genealogies that link the physical birth of Jesus and being a descendant in the line of David. He's a descendant of King David who lived a thousand years before that. So yes, there is truth to the idea that the Messiah was in fact a son of David, a descendant of David. Now, for the Jews, they had a little bit of stuff wrapped up, but there was meaning wrapped up in that, Right? To be a son of David, to be a descendant of David, the, that meant the Messiah, his mission was to do what David did, that is to be a king. So their idea of the Messiah was titled or was tied to this idea that he was, that the, the Messiah would be a son of David. He would be a king. And specifically, he would be a king of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. And that meant that in their eyes, that the Messiah was mainly or mostly, if you will, a king a political military figure who would come in, get rid of the Roman Empire or whoever the oppressors of the day were, and he would establish his throne and he would rule Israel from Jerusalem. All that's tied up in that title, Son of David. Now, when Jesus asks this question, what he's trying to do is he's going to begin to question or undermine, if you will, their perception of the Messiah. So he asks this question. He says, David himself, speaking of the Messiah in the 110th Psalm, says, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, the first Lord is actually in Psalm 110, the word Yahweh. So that's speaking of God the Father. The second Lord is the word Adonai, which means Lord in and that, and that scripture, means the Messiah. So God the Father says to God the Son. God the Father says to the Messiah, Sit at my right hand. Now, he says, Here's the question, he goes, if David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, is seeing this vision, if you will, how can David refer to the Messiah as Lord if he's only a descendant of David who will live a thousand years later? You're catching that? If the Messiah is only a human being descended from David a thousand years later, how can David in Psalm 110 refer to the Messiah as Lord? That doesn't make any sense. Now, what Jesus is doing here, you, you'll, you'll notice that Jesus asks the question and just kind of leaves it there. I remember growing up, my, my dad was a pastor, my dad's in the ministry, and one of the things that always scared me a little bit when I was in high school, we, we, we would bring friends over, and our, our houses where all the, all the kids hung out, because my mom liked to make cookies for everybody. So, if you have three dozen chocolate chip cookies, where are all the teenage guys going to hang out? Where the cookies are at right so my house is where all the way hang out now one thing my dad liked to do is we would get around we're eating cookies we're playing basketball we're playing ping pong whatever it is we're doing at the house dad would like to come out and every once in a while he would just do this he would hey uh, a friend of mine like steve or or brady or i had a friend of mine named brady back in the day uh friend named jim he would come out there and say hey Stephen, hey jim i got a question for you and he would just throw out one of these theological bombs what about what do you think about this and we're all just going We just want to play ping pong. (laughs) And my dad liked to throw these out there. And every once in a while, I I didn't date a whole lot in in high school. I didn't have a lot of girlfriends. But the the worst thing you want to do is bring a girlfriend to the house. And dad goes, I have a question for you. And you just went, oh, no. What Jesus does here is this. He just kind of throws out this little question. Boom. And everybody around him is going, They don't quite know what to make of it. And what you'll notice is that Jesus didn't actually answer the question, does he? He just throws the question out there and they all, uh, uh, wow. uh, And they're all speechless. Now, what's the point of all this? What is the point of this question? I think part of it is at least in this. The title Son of David is not an inaccurate title. It's a title that the Bible gives to Jesus. It's a title that the people of Israel gave to the Messiah. It's an accurate title, and it's, in that sense, it's biblically accurate. It's a title that God gives. But with that title, they had a whole set of expectations about what that title meant. And one of the things that Jesus is talking about, or one thing that Jesus wants to do here is this. He's, he's telling them, your, your title, your expectations in and of themselves are not wrong. They're just incomplete. They're insufficient. In other words, the Messiah is much more than just a king. He's more than just some guy who's going to kick the Romans out. He's more than just some guy who's going to reign in Jerusalem. There is actually more to the Messiah. To the, Goal and the ministry and the purpose of the Messiah. So it's not wrong, it's not heresy, if you will, it's just incomplete. In limiting their idea of the Messiah to Son of David, the people of Israel were taking God and limiting God to a particular land, to a particular purpose, and to a particular people. He was the God of Israel. He wasn't the God of everything else. He was just the God of Israel to them. And his job was to reign in Jerusalem. And his job was to uh, reign over a land that has these physical boundaries called Israel. And so they had, perhaps unintentionally, taken the God of the universe and reduced Him to a God who was simply supposed to live and reign in Jerusalem. Now, was God... And is God going to live and reign in Jerusalem? Absolutely. Is that the only place? Uh-uh. <laughs> He's not only the God of Israel. He's not only the God of Jerusalem. He's not only the God of those people. He's the God of everyone, everywhere. And so they had, under, they were undermining the idea of God. And so Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to begin to, to knock out these foundations for you that you've got this little picture of who the Messiah is is, or who God is, because your picture of God is too small. You have limited, it's not an inaccurate picture, it's an incomplete picture. They had limited God to a national political agenda. Now, for those of you who have been part of our Genesis study that we did earlier this year, that we finished up about two, two weeks ago on Sunday and Wednesday nights, One of the things that we saw in those first 11 chapters of Genesis is that God's agenda is not simply about the people of Israel. God's agenda has to do with all of creation and with all people all over the world. And that in His mission to the entire world, He used a purpose to use Israel in His ministry to the rest of the world. Now what Israel had done is taken God and reduced Him to simply the God of Israel. Now, by the way, that's a mistake that you and I can easily make today. If we're not careful, we'll make God an American God. Well, He's the God of a political party, or He's the God of our, of our nature, He's the God of only our history, or he's a, he's a Western God, and we give Him political and cultural goals. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't have things He wants to do in our nation, in our politics, and in our culture. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, God's a lot more than that. God has a bigger purpose for the Messiah. He may well be concerned with the culture of the United States, but He's not only concerned with the culture of the United States. What I'm saying is, I think sometimes our vision of God is incomplete and too small. You know, maybe a lot of us in this room, we're raised in church. We we first began to learn about Jesus. We first began to learn about God, maybe as children, and we sang children's songs. Y'all, 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 remember the songs you used to learn? Maybe if you were a little kid in church. Jesus loves me. It's a great song. Theologically accurate, <laughs> but we call it a children's song. Why is that? Because there's more to God than that. We, you know, when we when were a child, we learned some simplistic ideas about God is because we're not ready to handle more complex thoughts. But the truth is, God expects us to grow. God doesn't expect us to stay there. There is, and you, if you've been around me much, you know I, I love the writings and stories of C.S. Lewis. Everybody perhaps is familiar with the, the, the book and the movies about, called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's kind of C.S. Lewis' most famous story. He wrote another book, though, there's a whole, there's seven books in that Chronicles of Narnia series, and one that follows uh, the Lion, the Winter Wardrobe is called Prince Caspian. Now, there was a movie made about that one a few years ago, too. It didn't quite do as well as the other ones, but in, the, in, the, in Prince Caspian, the, the, the same four kids that are in the Lion, the Winter Wardrobe, um, they come back to Narnia. So just, just, just bear with me here as I kind of explain the story a little bit. They... They come, to, they come to Narnia in the line in which the wardrobe, they spend like 30 years in Narnia time there. They grow up, they go back to Earth and they're children again. Well, they go back to Narnia in the next book. And so by this point in time and you know the, the, the children have grown up a little bit so they're older in Prince Caspian than they are in the line of the Witch, which the wardrobe. And Lucy, the youngest of these children, these four kids, they're in trouble. There's, there's, a, there's trouble to be had in Narnia now so that's why they're back and and she's looking for Aslan, the lion, who is the Christ figure in these stories. Because Aslan's the one who was the big hero of the story in The Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe. He's the lion. Well, she's looking for Aslan, the lion. And eventually she finds him and she sees him. And at first she doesn't recognize him because he's so much bigger than what she had seen him before in The Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe. He's a bigger lion. And Here's their conversation. She says, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. He says, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you are just bigger. He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Now, what's the point C.S. Lewis is trying to make? The point is, as we grow in Christ, we'll find out that God is bigger than we thought he was. When we're children, we see God this way. And that's fine. It may not, necessarily, it may not be wrong. It's just not a full picture. And as we grow, as, we, as you and I grow up, and we grow up physically, but we also grow up mentally, we grow up emotionally, we grow up spiritually, what we'll find is that there's a lot more to God than we realized when we were six. There's a lot more to God than we would have known when, when we were 10. By the way, if you're, if you're 45, 50 years old like me and your perceptions of God are the same as they were, when they were when you were six, I want you to understand something. God's a lot bigger than that. Our pictures of God sometimes are too small. Now, if our pictures of God are too small, It is time for us, quite frankly, to grow up. God is much bigger than we sometimes give Him. So while Son of David may well have been an accurate title, it also implied a limited view of the purpose and the role of the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus' point was here in Mark 12, the Messiah is more than what you think He is. He's bigger than what you think He is. He's not simply a human descendant of David the Messiah is the eternal son of God. He's more than what you think. Israel had a limited <coughs> excuse me. Israel had a limited view of God. They limited the Messiah to the physical political realm of Jerusalem, of geography, of governing. And while he may have all those things and he may do all those things, he is more. Christ's aims were more profound than setting up rule over the Romans in the 1st century. His aim was not to solve Israel's military political problems. His goal was to solve to solve the human heart problem. That's a much bigger deal. So, vets don't make God smaller than he is. Now, Even today, if we're not careful, we will reduce God to someone who only deals with the physical stuff around us. I need more money. I need a better job. I need a better car. I understand. I get the need for all that. But God is in the business of doing a lot more than just that stuff. He's in the business of changing the human soul and resurrecting dead lives. Now, as a result, Israel had a small view of God. So he just throws this this little question out there, throws this little passage of Scripture out there to let them understand your guys' view of God is way, way underserved. And here's what happens. When we have a deflated, small view of God, what happens, or what the result is, we get an inflated view of us. The smaller we make God, the bigger we make ourselves. And here's what that looks like. So that next few verses here, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful Greeks in marketplaces. And he describes these guys. And listen, he says, listen, they like fame. They like respect. They want to, they want to have wealth. They want to have uh, renown. They're after all the honor they can find in this world. They want people to look at them and go, woo. Look at that guy. They like the long robes. They like the big fancy prayers. They uh, and one of the things that this is referring to is he mentions that they would devour widows' houses. One things these guys would do is they would sell their services of praying, because obviously they're much better prayers than everyone else. They pray in King James, right? I'm just I'm having a little fun there. These are righteous. These are Pharisees. These are scribes. These are guys who know God's Word. So. Surely they pray better than we do. So like a widow, would, you know, her husband dies, they need someone to preside or to pray over the, over, the, over the service. So she would hire one of these guys and they would charge her an exorbitant fee to bless the home or whatever the case may be. And so they were robbing these ladies, they were robbing people so they could be looked upon as some buddy. They have an inflated view of themselves. And by the way, the nation of Israel did this. The nation of Israel looked upon everyone else in the world as somehow inferior. They called Gentiles dogs. Now, I don't say this to pick on the nation of Israel. What I'm saying is this. The nation of Israel at that particular time in the ministry of Jesus thought of themselves in great and majestic terms because they were God's chosen people forgetting the fact that God had chosen them not to serve themselves, but to serve everybody else. Israel existed as God's chosen people to take the word of God to the nations, not to keep it inside the borders. And so the result was Israel had begun to lose sight of the majesty and the power and the vision of their God. They had made God less, and as they made God less, they made of themselves more. You may remember John the Baptist in his early on in his ministry. Well, as, I'm sorry, as he's nearing the end of his ministry, Jesus is already preaching. Jesus is already gathering disciples. And in the gospel of John, near the end of John the Baptist's life, um, he's baptizing, he's still preaching. And some of his disciples come up to him and they say, hey, this Jesus guy, he's up the road here just a couple miles and he's baptizing too. and He's got a bigger crowd than you do, John. And the idea is the disciples are kind of complaining to John the Baptist that Jesus is drawing big crowds. And, John's, and John, if I could just paraphrase, is going, that's the point. In fact, John responds with this. He must increase and I must decrease. John's going, that's exactly the point. He's got to do that. I need to disappear my job was to point people to him not draw people to me and by the way the same is true of us the point of london first baptist church the point of your life in whatever way shape or takes form as a student or as a as a as a a store owner or as an employee or whatever it might be the point of your life is not to draw attention to you it's to draw attention to christ the point of this church is not to draw attention to ourselves but to draw attention to christ that we might decrease as He increases. Now what happens is this. Maybe if we're not careful, we begin to think a little too highly of ourselves because we have thought too little of God. And if that's what's happening, then we begin to try to draw attention to ourselves. I tell you what, you walk into a room and you see the description of God's throne we saw in Revelation chapter 4, that will put an end to that garbage real fast. You cannot be in God's presence and tell people to look at you instead. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. We need a big theology of God and a little theology of us. We need a big theology, a big understanding of the purpose and mission of God. I want to uh, just, we're briefly here, make make a little uh, side note. Some of you may or may not, depending upon your age, know, of a, know the name Kanye West. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, for those of you who don't know who Kanye West is, Kanye West is a hip-hop rap artist um, who, even in his own circles, has a reputation for being a jerk. Kanye West released a song about six years ago with the title, I Am A God. And that will sum up who Kanye West has been. In the last several weeks and last several months, there have been rumblings and, and, uh, and news that maybe Kanye West has become a believer in Christ. i got to admit, for the most part, I saw some of those stories a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and be like, eh, whatever. Because you know. even though I don't listen to that, I know the reputation. Um, i got to admit, I just ignored it. This past week, Kanye West released... A Christian album and he's been on the news a whole lot lately and he has been over the last month or two very vocal and very out there if you will about his conversion to faith in Christ now he has got uh, people he's got a pastor and some people around him who quite frankly have sterling i mean fantastic theological theological reputations who are saying this guy has in fact come to faith in christ there have been articles in places like the washington post the new york times talking about him talking about christ and i do find it interesting that a man who six years ago put out a song saying i am a god has now put out an album called jesus is king now i'll tell you this i don't know kanye west personally I don't know if he's really saved or not. Time will tell. But it has been kind of interesting to follow in pop culture circles and even in Christian, Christian media, social media circles the last week or two since this album came out. A lot of people speculating that he's not, it's not really real. In fact, a lot of Christians on social media have been very condemning, not believing it. Well, again, I don't know if Kanye West is really a Christian or not. He, I got to admit, he'd be one of those guys up at way down the list of thought guys I would ever thought would come to faith in Christ. But here's the question: Am I of the opinion that God only saves people like me? Does God only save nice people? Is my understanding of the power and majesty of God is that Kanye West was beyond saving? If that's my vision of God, then my God is too small. If that's my vision of God, I may not, believe, I may not be believing in the God of the Bible. Kanye West, again, I don't know if he ultimately is saved or not. Time will tell that answer. But if I doubt that he's, he can be saved simply because it was past then I'm making the same mistakes that the people of Israel were making 2,000 years ago. And my God is too small, and my opinion of myself is just a little bit too high. Because in the end, I need the exact same blood from the cross that He does. I need the exact same sacrifice for my sins that He does. And if my vision of God is that someone like that can't be saved, then I may be the one who is not, in fact, saved. Let's don't make the mistake that these guys made here. Now, one last thing here. A big view of God will lead to a big faith in God. This poor widow comes in, and she puts in what she has. It's not a great deal. It's not a lot. Nobody would look at what she gave and say, well, that's a lot of money. But Jesus says she gave more than all these other guys because she gave all that she had. Her, her act of worship was to hold nothing back. And Why can't she hold nothing back? Because she has a God who can take care of her every need? Now, this is not, I'm not gonna go off into the little five minute thing on tithing, okay? That's not the point here. The point is this though we, we do tithing, we give, we, we pass the offering plates, which we do at the end of the service. We do this not because we need to pay the electric bill. Now, by the way, we do need to pay the electric bill, but we do the tithing, we give. As part of our worship. And by the way, this is, when we use these, and there's nothing magical about these things, but when we use these, we pass them around, this is part of our worship. This is not an act to pay the bills. This is an act of worship. What I'm telling God is this. I realize that all I have came from you. That you somehow managed to save me despite the fact I was a rebel and had sinned against you. And because of your great grace, because of your great salvation, in an act of worship and an act of adoration, I want to share with you how much you mean to me. And God, I don't have the great things that you did, so what I do have is what you gave me is this, and I give it back to you. The reason the tithe was given in the Old Testament The reason, by the way, God always says, don't give me the leftovers, give me the first 10%, give me that first bit, is because the first bit is the best. It's an act of worship. So why would I want to, if God has done all this for me, why would I want to give him only my leftovers? Now, now I realize, you know, if if you're like me, I grew up doing this, man, you know, mom makes a great meal, Angela makes a great meal, and we don't eat all of it, and so it goes to the fridge, and a little bit later on that week for lunch, we have... Leftovers. But generally speaking, if you have somebody over to your house, let's, let's say you made a cake on Saturday afternoon. You get this nice chocolate cake. Amen. And so on Saturday night, you had cake. On Sunday afternoon, you had cake. And on Tuesday night, three days later, there's about a quarter of that cake left. And you have some guests come over to your house. Would you say, like, look at this, I made this just for you. They're going to go, yeah, I don't think so. We don't even give our guests leftovers, do we? We make something new for them if we can. The widow gave all she had to a God who saved her because she had a God who was big. If we're stingy with what we are worshiping God with, and by the way, it's not just money, it may be even our, our singing. It might be our time. If we're stingy with God with our time, if we're giving God only the leftovers of our time to worship Him, if we're giving God only the leftovers of our resources because we had to do this or do that, then what we're telling God is, I'm, you're too small and I'm too big. You can't do what needs to be done. So I will take care of it myself. Again, let me go back to Genesis again. We saw at least two examples in those first 11 chapters of Genesis where someone said, I can take care of myself better than God can. That was a guy who died in the flood and a guy who got wiped out of the Tower of Babel. Ask them how that worked for them. As God's people, we cannot come to God in worship, whether it's the breath we sing with or the money we live by and say, you get the leftovers, God. It's all right. That's all right. Don't worry about it. When our God is big, our faith will be big. Even Israel struggled with the idea that God loved people other than themselves. Look at Jonah. I know sometimes we look at that story, Jonah. Don't you want to be like Jonah? Oh no, you don't want to be like Jonah. Jonah did not love the people God sent him to. Jonah's vision of God was too small. Jonah resented the fact that God wanted to save people besides himself. Jonah fought it at every turn. Jonah's God was too small. God's calling us to a a better picture of who he is. God was more, the Messiah was more than the people of Israel had imagined. As a result, Israel had a small view of God, and an inflated view of themselves. But Jesus did find this one lady. He said, now that is someone who has a big God and a big faith. Next week, by the way, we will be presenting to you a budget for 2020. The budget's a little bit ambitious. The budget will have more money in it than we took in this year, that we're expected to take in this year. But that budget was put together because we said, we believe these are things that God wants us to see us do in 2020. So the numbers are there, not based upon what we received this year, the numbers are there, what we think God wants to do next year. So the question will be, will we as a church respond in faith? Or will our God be too small? As you get that next week, I want you to think about that. I just put that out there. I don't know about you, I don't want to live with a small God. The God of Revelation 4. The God who said, I'm more concerned for you than what size house you have or what size car you have. I am concerned for you in this. I want you to spend eternity in that throne room. (laughs) that's god's heart and it's not just for people like us it's for people around the world even the ones that we think might be beyond saving people that don't look like us people that don't talk like us people whose culture or whose background or whose ethnicity is different than us that's god's heart and we have the privilege here at london first baptist to be part Of a God big enough to save and to work through the entire world. That's our